Welcome to episode 22 of the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. And in this episode, I interview Kathy Sierra, aka Panther Flows. Kathy Sierra has 10 years working in human sports medicine as a training director in Los Angeles. She then went back to school for computer science, working after as a game developer and software architect. Kathy eventually worked in Hollywood and taught interaction design for intrinsic motivation at UCLA Entertainment Studios and Universal Studio. And she went on to create an educational book series in technology that sold over 2 million copies. Horses have been a lifelong passion for Kathy, but not her profession. However, when her beloved horse, Draymer, was nearly euthanized, Kathy felt it was her fault. So she took everything in her background on motivation, learning psychology, neuroscience, and movement science, and synthesized a path forward to help him when conventional methods failed. Eventually, other people saw them and began to ask for help with their horses, so she created the philosophy and principles of Intrinsen. She lives on a small island in the border of US and Canada with her husband and six horses. In this episode, we discuss Kathy's start with horses and how her career in sports biomechanics influenced her horsemanship, the psychology of intrinsic motivation for movement in horses, the story of Draymer, a horse who once refused to move and who Kathy considers the founder of everything she does now with horses and movement. We discuss using negative and positive reinforcement without diminishing intrinsic motivation. The challenge of Vavi of helping a horse find badass movement. The birth of Intrinsen and Kathy's tips on how to get started with this way of training. What could be really happening when you think your horse is quote unquote testing you? setting up your environment to create intrinsic motivation for movement, Kathy's views on healthy horses and what healthy movement is. Creativity, experimentation and autonomy in training horses, plus so much more. Kathy is extremely intelligent, knowledgeable and polarizing with her views on horses, horse training and biomechanics. This discussion is a deeper level discussion, so don't feel completely overwhelmed. We are discussing some very complex topics here, and I'm aware that this might be people's first exposure to this kind of conversation. So try to listen with an open mind, and you can get in touch with Kathy on Instagram at PantherFlows if you would like to find out more. Welcome to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast, a source for riding and training insights with the goal of helping your horse be a happy, light, and willing partner. I'm your host, Amalia Dempsey, a mainstream equestrian rider who discovered natural horsemanship, and now I help riders like you achieve connection and communication, so you can have more fun and fulfillment whilst prioritizing partnership with your horse. Want to find out my horse training philosophy? Access the free connection and communication mini course at AmaliaDempsey.com. Now sit back, relax, enjoy the show, and hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. Welcome, Kathy, to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. It's an absolute honor to have you here today on the show. From what I've seen of you and know about you, you have some really interesting, polarizing, and confronting views and beliefs on the horse world. So I know our discussion today is going to be very interesting. So thanks again for being here. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited. It's going to be good. So let's start. Tell us about your horsemanship journey to date when you got into horses and what has led to where you are today? Uh, yeah, this is the hardest one just because, you know, it's really long. So I'm going to, I'm going to skip over as much as I can. Um, it, probably the start that a lot of other people had, you know, horse crazy from the time I was tiny. I, I don't think I can remember a time when I wasn't 
my uncle had a cattle ranch. So we spent a great deal of time at that ranch. And eventually he gave us one of his retired, retired uh, cow horses. And I'm so happy that that was our start because she was amazing. And I got to have that feel of a horse where, you, you know, we never rode her with a bit or anything. You just stay out of her way and she knows what to do. And especially if she was in front of a cow. <laughs> and you got to feel a horse that had you know, purpose to her movements. And as long as you allowed her to do what she already was capable of doing. And so that was really super fun. Um, then I got my own horse when I think I was maybe 12. Uh, and then, you know, got into different kinds of competition like, like youth riders do. Um, and then I, I sold my horses to go to college because I had to put myself through school. So that was very sad. Um, but while I was in school, I had the opportunity to buy an off-the-track thoroughbred racehorse and work off most of my board for him by working uh, with some of the racehorses. Um, because my education at the time was a, a Bachelor of Science in, well, now they call it kinesiology. So it was exercise physiology, uh, biomechanics, and sports psychology. And at the time, applying exercise physiology to training these racehorses was really new. Like heart rate monitors were not really a thing yet. So we were helping them adapt heart rate monitors that were you know, s still not in widespread use for humans either. Um, so that was kind of fun. And I, of course, had no clue what really went on at the track. This was just a really nice farm. Um, and then I just had horses, you know, on and off through my, you know, middle years, having kids and all of that. And, you know, I should say right up profession, I'm not a professional. I've never, uh, it's always been my passion but it, it's never been my career. So the first, you know, 15 years after school were all in um, exercise physiology and training humans. And then I switched careers, which is relevant <laughs> to what I do now. Uh, the reason I switched careers is because this was at a time when it was what I would call peak biomechanics, when everything in the human world was absolutely biomechanics correctness and I was working at some of the, actually, I think the top facility that you could possibly be in, a sports medicine center in Los Angeles. And I was the training director. And it just wasn't ever going to get any better than that. I just got very lucky to be in that position. And we had, you know, physicians on staff. And, and at any given time, I had 100 trainers working for me. At any given time, probably a third of them were literally broken. Uh, Basically, everyone was walking around with some kind of a cast or a splint or a, everyone was injured. And we had the best possible equipment that you could ever have and the best possible exercise programming. And yet, the more we put people through these biomechanically correct uh, training programs, the more fragile and broken they got. So I, I thought, I mean, I didn't realize then what was wrong. I just thought... This is horrible. It's breaking my heart. 
And if this is as good as it will ever get, because we have the best that exists, then I don't want to be in this profession anymore. It's, it's awful. Um, I, I just, I couldn't do it. So I left. Again, didn't know it was actually the real problem. Um, and switched to computer science, went back to school. And uh, that, the timing of that was, I, and because I was in Los Angeles, so I ended up working in, um, first in artificial intelligence, which was very fun at the time, because it was a lot about uh, modeling in a computer how humans actually learn. And it was trying to make good, uh, sort of artificially intelligent instructors inside the computer. Most of that never actually worked, um, but the, the research was amazing. And then I went into game development and went to work for Hollywood, and that was a, a huge influence on, of course, what I do now, because that was the psychology of intrinsic motivation, creating playful experiences, how to combine uh, these experiences that were intrinsically rewarding with other forms of reinforcement, like positive and negative reinforcement. Um, and I eventually went on to teach that at UCLA and... So then, um, after that, after I stopped doing all of that, uh, just because the dot-com crashed, and so I started writing computer books, and that's how I make my living. But I was able then to spend a lot more time with my horses, and I got into Icelandic horses almost 20 years ago, and um, that changed everything for me. I was hooked. That was it. That was all I was ever going to do. And I'm sure all I will ever do is the Icelandic horses. Um, but, uh, and I also first picked up a clicker for the horses, I think, 20 years ago. So I'd already had the I was doing combinations, you know. Um, but mostly I was still doing pretty traditional training and not doing it very well. And I, you know, I had lots and lots of trainers. I mean, I had all the best resources you could have. And I s still was feeling very unhappy about all of it. Um, and I don't blame any of them. It, I mean, now I understand e everyone was kind of working in a pretty broken system. So it's really wonderful when it does work for people, but it so often doesn't. And my horse Dramer, the Palomino, who's, who's kind of my horse that really launched everything. I consider him the founder of all this. He, uh, I don't even know how to describe, because it's almost hard to believe how far gone he was, and he was only, I think he had just turned seven, and uh, at the time, he, he, just, he just went on this downhill over a period of maybe six to nine months to where he just stopped moving, and I mean, re like, really stopped moving, couldn't move. You could push him over and he would just fall over and lay there. So three different vets diagnosed him with EPM. But at the time, there wasn't a definitive test except for a spinal tap, which was more invasive. So they said, well, you know, it doesn't hurt to just treat him as if he had EPM. We've ruled out everything else we could, doesn't have any fractures in his spine. And, you know, so let's, let's just try to treat him and see if that helps. And of course it didn't because, you know, Spoiler alert, he didn't actually have it. Um, but it was about, oh, nine months or so before we figured out. A new test came out. I'm sure one that they use now. So uh, then it turned out he didn't have it. And 
that was sort of the start of a long journey. And I had help to try to get him moving again. But then whenever I didn't have the professional training him, I mean, he literally went away to a trainer. When he came back, he was really feeling pretty good. And he started to deteriorate with me almost immediately. So that was the turning point because now I knew with 100% certainty, there is nothing wrong, fundamentally wrong with him. It's me. I'm, I mean, it was the combination, right? He did have, you know, issues, but those issues were the kind of issues that only either the most incredibly skillful person and a person who was willing to literally just beat the shit out of him and try to somehow make it happen. I was never going to be either of those things. Um, and nothing else worked. And then I tried a much more um, pure positive reinforcement approach and he got worse. So that was part of the start of my, wait a minute. <laughs> You know, I know how this works. I know all of the psychology here. Of course it's not working. He just became even less motivated to move the more I tried to clicker train him into moving. Why do you think that was? Um, well, that, that is, uh, there's some really good science about that. And it's if you are giving, which is a huge part of the basis of what I do, if you are giving a horse a purely extrinsic reinforcer, but this could also be true with, um, you know, forcing the horse into it. It doesn't really matter. It's if you're doing something that's causing the horse to move and he's doing it purely for an external regulation reward, which could be a, a treat or, you know, pressure and release mm -hmm. that um, can not only cause a steep decline in intrinsic motivation if they have it for movement. And it could be that they can still have intrinsic motivation for other movements, but these movements, they will, uh, they can lose their intrinsic motivation for that activity. Um, and if they don't quite have it, you can basically prevent it from happening. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and it's the, in the science terms, it's called the over justification effect. And it's part of the leading theory of um, motivation, which is self-determination theory. And it's a very robust finding. So it, it's just that it's so counterintuitive to so many people. Like how can, how can being rewarded for something cause you to lose intrinsic motivation for it? Um, why it happens, but they absolutely know it does happen. And it happens with humans and animals. So I knew that. Um, so that's when I kind of had my real moment that uh, he, he had deteriorated so far again with me now the second time that he was, I mean, even the veterinarians were like, I don't, we don't know what this is, but euthanization is probably the only step left. And I was devastated. Um, and by that time I'd already bought my other horse because, you know, I knew that Dreamer, if he even survived, he would just be a pasture horse forever. But now it's looking like he wouldn't even survive because, you know, if you have a horse that no longer moves, won't even move to go eat, um, you know, that his quality of life was at the bottom. And that night, I, the night before we were going to make that decision, I just 
happened to be reading two books and one of them was drive by dan pink and he has a great ted talk on on it and it's on it's about this issue of motivation and then the other one was xenophon who i read xenophon's on horsemanship you know i don't know every few years yeah <laughs> and he what xenophon was talking about uh, in part of it, are you familiar with some of his quotes? Yeah, but I would say Xenophon. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, yeah. who is Xenophon? <laughs> Xenophon. So, yeah, Xenophon. So, you know, he, he has the one that... Ev- <laughs> That's awesome. So, you know, he has the one, the awesome one that everybody uses about, you know, where he compares them to dancers, right? You're not going to, you're not going to get a beautiful dancer with whips and chains and everything. Mm-hmm. So... There was a part in his book where he, you know, he wanted his horses to be able to inspire. You know, there was a lot of parade work, right? He, he was no longer training them for actual battle, but there was a lot of, of parade and show work. And he wanted his horse, whatever horse he was riding, he wanted that horse to be able to inspire the other troops, which meant inspire the other horses, and so he talked about how his goal was to get the horse to show off like for other horses and he said he would save his absolute biggest reward for that so he said you know if your horse starts showing off for other horses that's when you give your biggest reward now and of course this is all translated but you know in their in their world and still today the biggest reward that you could give a you know pressure release trained horse is to get off and immediately remove all the tack right so he actually says get off and take everything off the horse right it's like this is the best thing you could ever get in training so save your you know save your best for that this is what you want Mm -hmm. so he was talking about of course intrinsic motivation And then maybe a few minutes later, I was reading this one section at the end of Dan Pink's book, and he even uses it in some of his videos, that said, humans are not like horses, simply responding to carrot and stick. And I I looked at that, my first thought was, well, yeah, like, turns out doesn't work with horses either. And, And then, you know, why it took me so long, I don't know, again, I had literally taught this science and it just hit me that, oh my God, if, if the carrot and stick, you know, purely extrinsic reinforcement fails often with horses, then maybe what motivates humans in terms of this intrinsic motivation could also work with horses. So I just took his approach which is actually straight out of self-determination theory. And I said, you know, this is the only chance I have. I can't think of anything else. But Xenophon gave the clue because he said, reward the horse for showing off. So I thought, well, how can I get the horse to show off? He, he doesn't even want to move. So I thought, well, if I can at least get him to get um, some reaction of being like angry with me that would be a motivation of you know that would be an emotion of like empowerment right that's how far gone he was like i don't really recommend this to anyone but if it's life or death. Him. i was gonna say you're almost rewarding him for expressing himself for coming out of his shell well exactly which which i still do today but yeah. at the time you know i i was uh, i mean the way i 
refer to it as I was rewarding him for dissing me. He didn't have the energy to disrespect that was going to harm me, right? He couldn't have kicked out or bucked to, you know. But he, like, flattened his ears a little bit and arched his neck, right? He was just like, because I was annoying him. He was standing up, and I, was, I wasn't going to hit him because that, that would just shut him the rest of the way down anyway. Mm-hmm. But I just started shaking it behind it and snapping it behind him. I knew he wouldn't move, but he would give me possibly that sort of, you know, grumpy... Yeah. With a little bit of an arched neck. So I waited for that moment. He knew the clicker really well, right? Just didn't motivate him anymore. He, there was no treat worth moving. Mm-hmm. Nothing, right? A huge bucket of sweet feed. And he'd go, it's not worth it. It's too, moving is too awful. So the moment I clicked, of course, he knew exactly what I was clicking for. And I think one of the most beautiful moments is just to see how shocked he was. <laughs> And I still love that moment because whenever there's a new horse who's never been trained that way, but they understand the clicker and then you click them for something they usually get punished for, like pawing, right? They're used to being like smacked for pawing, but pawing leads to, you know, like panther walk or Spanish walk. Mm -hmm. So when they start pawing or when they, if it's like a low energy horse and they finally turn around and run away from you and I'd click them for that, you know, and they'd be like, what (laughs) and and then often they'll verify it right they'll go you didn't mean that right that was that had to be an accident no one would ever reward me for this and I'm like oh hell yeah run away from me again right so that's still what I do but he changed almost overnight he at first all he could do because he did understand the clicker so well he would just arch his neck right into that uh, posture, right? Like the little one-tenth of one percent of what I would consider badass dragon posture, but it was there. And I'd say within maybe eight weeks, he was like arching his neck and actually trotting around like a, a fancy trot. He didn't have any of the musculature to do it, so he, you know there was no suspension. His legs didn't come off the ground, right? But you could tell he thought he was doing it that trot that horses will do when they are showing off with his physical capacity so low that was the best he could do but you could tell he was do he was giving it his all and he was absolutely like i i'm just going to keep doing this this is yeah and and i just made the decision right then i don't care if for the rest of his life he shows me attitude you know like bad attitude <laughs> He gets to, right? He gets to do whatever he wants to do and express himself however he wants to. And it, it just kept going. Um, and then, uh, uh, so I was, you know, shocked, amazed, kept going. Uh, and I understood it as a motivation effect using movement. Um, because another piece of that was the research on power pose by Amy Cuddy. Mm-hmm. Um, she had a big famous, yeah, 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 yes, Superman pose, yeah. well, Wonder, Woman. Well, Wonder Woman, yeah. <laughs> the open, expansive pose. Some of that research, um, has not been replicated, but the part I cared about was that what started it before she was really doing the power pose was the research on the connection between status, confidence levels, and posture in animals. 
So they would study animals and look at, you know, who was aggressive, who was at the bottom, who was, you know, all of these interactions between these animals. And then they would see if their posture was correlated and then they would do, uh, look at their cortisol levels, look at their testosterone levels. They would look and see, okay, what, what is their endocrine system doing? What's the neurochemistry of these animals? And then, of course, the big breakthrough was if we can actually give them these chemicals, will they then suddenly have those postures? And will those postures actually um, affect their status? And, of course, that did. And then the very next stage was, which led to the power poses, what if we could just get them to do the postures? Would the postures alone start to have that effect? And it did. So I saw some of this and I was just, you know, my mind was blown and I thought this helps explain what happened with him. Mm. That it wasn't just that he's being rewarded. And I'll come back and why it's different. Why, you know, why it's different from a normal plus R where you're rewarding them for the incremental behaviors. Mm -hmm. And part of it has to do with that sort of neuroendocrine response um, that we think it seems to act like a, a little bit of a protection from that over justification effect that, you know, it's of course it's all subconscious, but their brain is interpreting the meaning of the reward differently mm -hmm. than when they're doing it purely because that's how they're going to earn the reward. Um, and that feels like a subtle distinction to people, but it's actually not. And it's, of course, the basis of, of what we have to navigate in game design because, you know, uh, like game designers will say, well, if you just want to use extrinsic rewards, then the most fun games should just be one where every time they click a button, they get the chance to get more points. They don't have to actually do anything or be skillful or do any hard work. They're just, wow, they're going to watch their score go up um, and get more tokens or whatever. So, uh, no, it's how do you actually still have an, a, a situation where you're using um, extrinsic reinforcement, which could also, of course, be negative reinforcement, might be uh, positive reinforcement, without diminishing intrinsic motivation. And the, the, the very oversimplified but easiest answer is if there is a moment of high effort. It doesn't have to be super high energy, but it has to be high effort. And that effort... Uh, often, especially if it's very focused, will trigger a cascade of neurochemistry and that helps change the perception of the reward. Um, and there is research in humans on that, but n not on animals, that part of it, but it doesn't matter. So much of these effects are tested even first on animals and then humans. So if I have something that's worked on humans not at the level of the prefrontal cortex, then I'm thinking, okay, it's, it's probably going to apply in some way to the horses because most of this does apply to all mammals. So uh, then I got my horse, Vavi, and he was not very, he was a really good, easygoing horse, but he never challenged anyone. He never played. He didn't, you know, he was the opposite of a badass. So... <laughs> By this time, I'd actually started having conversations with Amy Cuddy. In fact, Dramer and Vavi are actually in her book. They're mentioned wow. in her book. Oh. And I said, um, 
okay, I'm going to do Operation Badass with Bobby. And, and with him, it wasn't a life or death thing, right? So I could just have fun with it. So I said, you know, can I get him to, you know, act like a, a, the fire-breathing dragon pose? Because he never did anything like that, even for other horses. He wouldn't really run around with the other horses. But he wasn't, like, depressed. He was happy to move out. But, uh, and that took a while, but he was also a very stiff, pacey horse, so his movements were pretty restricted. And I still hadn't yet got to the point where I had the real, uh, the kind of movement focus I have now. Like now I do it all through movement. Movement is, is at the bottom of it, the foundation. But then I was still focused on motivation, but I was, you know, I would use the movement to get there, but my primary focus was the motivation. Now I'm sort of like, if you take care of the movement, the motivation <laughs> takes care of itself. So I, uh, so by doing this, it was teaching him, well, I say teaching, for him it was chasing the bag. Uh, something that Dramer never really liked, and I hardly, almost never would do it with him, because he, you know, he didn't like it, doesn't need it. For Vavi, it took a while, but once he finally understood that it was kind of fun to actually go after it, before that he'd just walk and then put his hoof on it, right? <laughs> and then one day, whatever that switch was, it switched and he understood all of a sudden, this is fun, I can jump on this thing and I can catch it really fast, right? And that was it. He just, it became like his favorite thing, even though I don't do that with him very often, um, you know, maybe a few times a year. But for him, once he did that, you know, like my husband saw him the next day in the pasture going up to some of the horses and just, right, doing that thing like like stallions will do, like where they just stomp their front leg down. Yeah. He would just go, what I can do. This high and stomp it down, you know. And he'd never done as long as I'd owned him, he'd never moved like that. And so he just thought it was the most awesome thing. And his personality started to emerge with the other horses, you know, almost immediately. So he, for him, that was what unlocked his ability to start to regain. Oh yeah, I'm a horse and I can move like this and I can be badass. And uh, it was just. So that was a super powerful one for me. And then I just kept, uh, I just kept going. I wanted to see, you know, I, I treated it like it was rehab, but I thought, well, I'm not gonna stop. I'm just gonna keep going and see what happens and keep experimenting. And it was such a shock um, how, uh, like Vavi, I was competing in Icelandic sport. And over that time, we went from last place <laughs> in novice classes I mean, I really sucked. Two, we were 10th in the United States in the open individual classes, you know, competing against people who went to the world championships on the, on this same horse. He was a trekking yeah. horse, you know, in Iceland. Yeah. And, uh, and I just wanted to see, uh, without me getting, I suddenly didn't become any better of a, you know, of an Icelandic rider or trainer. It, but he did through just this movement exploration, right? Yeah. I just needed to be able to stay out of his way. Mm. And uh, so that was absolutely incredible to me. And then Dramer just kept going and going and going. And, uh, and then after some time, 
you know, of course, other people in the community noticed. You know, some of them knew me at my lowest with Dramer. They knew Dramer. They knew Vavi. There were people who had the chance to buy Vavi, and they were like, oh, no way, right before I got him. <laughs> They're like, no, we're not going to get that horse. So he was the horse nobody took seriously, and, of course, he was amazing. He is amazing. And uh, so people started to ask, well, what are you really doing? How are you doing this? And that's what really Intrinsen is. Intrinsen was just, I'd been doing all of these things. I had evolved the movement science a lot because I'd actually gone back to school, got a few new certifications. I'd sort of refreshed my ancient, you know, um, exercise physiology stuff and was shocked at how much the movement world had changed and the human movement world had yeah. changed and progressed. It was astonishing. And so that gave me the big leap that I needed to put all the pieces together. Um, so that it was easier to talk about. And, and help people understand what was happening, mm -hmm. but but without being a method, because it's not. It's you could apply it any way you want. This is how I apply it. But there's a million ways that you could do it. But this is how this stuff works. This is what movement can do. This is what motivation can do. And uh, here, you know, here's a way to think about it. And here's this all the science. And any way that you can figure out how to apply that is probably good. Um, and that's kind of how it all happened and I really only ever thought there'll be 30 people in the world who will want to do this because they will be the people who were as desperate as I was like this is my last chance with this horse I have nothing to lose and in the beginning that is mostly what it was people who came and said I have nothing left to try I've tried everything I have nothing left to try mm -hmm. and it's like oh okay well let's see um, and then I was shocked when I started seeing people mostly from Europe. In fact, today still, it's mostly people in Europe yeah. and some awesome New Zealanders and a few <laughs> Aussies, but, but mostly Europe, uh, not the United States. And Why do you think it's mostly Europe? I, you know, I, I keep trying to ask that question. Part of it, I think, is that there are people in these horse communities where they're closer together. Mm. You know, the United States is so spread out. So, you know, there, there could never be any such thing as a regional get together for people doing this kind of thing, right? You, you might live hundreds of miles from the next person who's doing it. Mm -hmm. um, part of that, but also there's a lot of what I'll call kind of the bad cowboy culture, not the good cowboy culture, but the, uh, you know, like my uncle who, who loved the horses and the horses were, you know, they were worked very hard, but they were respected and revered. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't all this show them who's boss and all that stuff. Yeah. So. Show them who's boss. So it wasn't like that. Um, that's one theory, um, but I don't know. It may be that people have access to trainers, but they have access to trainers in Europe too. I think mm -hmm. it was just small groups of people would sort of infect their friends and they had enough of a community. But also, I think that there were far more young women in Europe who it wasn't uncommon to, you would do your normal work, um, you know, like dressage or some sort of classical work, but then it was very common for them to also do sort of now we'll work on tricks. Yeah. And so they already kind of had, they'd broken through that barrier of, 
well, it's okay sometimes to teach tricks and you're going to use a treat for that. So it wasn't such a big shocking change um, because they already had a context where they could go, well, maybe we'll just explore that part of it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, so they didn't have to leap off the cliff as much as a lot of other people did. Yeah, true. Um, but I don't even know that for sure, but yeah. that's, um, that's what happened. And it, it's, I mean, there's, there's hundreds of people just in Germany. Yeah. Wow. So it's amazing. Your story is yeah. just so inspiring. And I just love how you combine your knowledge from different areas and bring that to the horse world. And this is something I can really relate to because as I went through my physiotherapy studies, whilst riding my horse in a very traditional way, I started to go, hang on a second. And by the way, during my studies, we were already talking about how biomechanics isn't everything and how movement should be intrinsically motivating and all these things. And I was like, hang on a second, this is not how I ride my horse. But at the same time, <laughs> I didn't really want to question my coaches. No one else was talking about this. And this is the way that things were always done. So I love how you're now bringing that to the world in a really big way. And I, I don't think it's surprising that you have thousands of people who are interested in, in what you're promoting. So that's fantastic. Um, now, if someone's listening who's like a pretty mainstream rider, how can someone get started with your way of training and your approach with horses, I guess, especially since you don't necessarily teach the training side of things? Where would you suggest people get started on this pathway? Yeah, so I, I've been thinking about that question. Um, you know, first, kind of this the disclaimer, I want to say that if someone is you know, happy with what they're doing, right? They should just keep doing whatever they're doing, right? If they feel it's working, they should just keep doing it. Um, yeah. Even if I think, and, and, you know, even though you do things differently, but your background, right? We still have that overlap of this physical yeah. changes that have happened in the physical sciences. Well, so I think some of what they're doing, you know, may not be a very good idea, but it's not that it can't work. A lot of times, obviously, for a lot of people, it does, although usually very slowly compared to if you just let the horses, you know, learn how to do it themselves. Um, but if for some reason, right, people do want to start making this switch for whatever reason. And like I said, now now we do have people who weren't desperate, who, who didn't come to this because... Mm -hmm everything else was not working. This is what shocked me when people started saying, no, I just don't like what I was doing. I was good at it. It worked. Yeah. I liked my trainer, but I just didn't like that way of being with my, I knew my horse didn't really like it. He'd do it. He'd do it really well even, but he didn't like it. I, it just didn't feel like me. Yeah. So they were drawn to it for other reasons that it just more resonated with how they just wanted to be with the horses or how they just the kind of fun they wanted to have um yeah. because it's just about it's really really fun so they said you know i that's how i want to experience life with my horse i don't want to be correcting him and uh, you know and be frustrated and or any of that and so that was a change that they made but here's what i would have to say it it often i think most of the time it feels much more daunting and almost impossible at first because I had to face this um, 
you know, if you stop suddenly, you know, getting after your horse, right? You got the whip, the horse slows down when you didn't ask him to, you get after him with the whip. He's not moving the way you want. He, you got it there and he knows you're willing to right it's a reminder so if the horse is used to that he doesn't get to say no uh and suddenly you take that away from yourself you, you tell yourself i'm not going to use that tool anymore some horses it takes a while before they figure that out right a lot of horses won't sort of test that right but then eventually they do, and then you kind of have this standoff where the horse is like, you know, you're not actually going to hit me, so, or kick me, or get after me, so what are you going to do? What do you got? <laughs> what else do you got? And that's when the person sits there and goes, oh, my God, what else do I have? You know, that's yeah, the big moment, but that's the moment. But that's the moment when you go, Wow. Now the world just opened up into something incredible. Right now, the absolutely amazing creative challenge happens. And, and if you don't go through that door, then you never find out, right? And it, and it seems like, but it would be impossible because in your current training, it would be. If you just stopped, if you just stopped one day using your whip and using, right? I mean, if that, if that was okay for people to do, they'd all be doing it already, right? They just wouldn't ever have their whip. Um, but I mean, I never rode without my whip. It would just, because uh, otherwise, what do I have, right? Mm. Need to just back up that, you know, I never whipped them, but it was still there to back up that leg cue or, you know, the whole thing was based on that. So when you stop doing that and the horse figures that out, it, it, then you kind of go, what do I have? And I think a, a path that often doesn't work well although it still can help get you there, but it's not the one I would prefer is, um, well, then I'll just use, I'll just switch to positive reinforcement. So it's like, okay, now the horse is saying, no, I'm not going to step my leg over like that. And so they go, well, then I'll just try to shape it, you know, with treats. But then you get into that same thing. The horse is now only, instead of doing it because you're going to get him with the stick, now he's just doing it because you're going to give him a treat. And that's not a compelling movement purpose mm. so there's no there's no intrinsic reason to do that so there's no self-organization from the nervous system because the horse's yeah. brain has no idea why you're asking for that it's mm. meaningless so they might very well do it if they if it's easy and they want the treat right but that's not the path that i that i think leads to the <laughs> A lot of the things that we really want but but it's the simple answer when people go well if I don't have a stick you know then I'll then I'll use treats and positive reinforcement but that uh, so this is one of the reasons I really love what Nikki is doing because she's really I think demonstrating that you can let go of the force and yet so you can give the horse a complete choice and yet still use some pressure and release yeah. and not do everything with positive reinforcement, but do it with play and intrinsic motivation. Yeah. So she's using a sort of a different, somewhat different path, but she's, it's based on the same underlying thing that mm. now the, the horses want to do these activities the movements, not because of what they're going to get for doing it. Um, so that, that I think is, once you come to that, 
that the answer is not just switch to a different quadrant of operant conditioning, but instead say, let's use nature. Let's do everything we can to use what's in the horse's nature, what's in the environment, mm. and help that horse, uh, if they need to, rediscover a love for movement. If they already do love movement, then it's more just a matter of kind of working with them in ways where they're doing the things they want to do. You're making those more robust. Um, and then helping find a movement purpose for the things that they normally resist so that then you can start to get those. And I guess my ultimate goal is for the horse's movements, movement system to say, you know what, that movement's just no big deal. Sure, I can do that. Yeah. It's just no big deal, right? And then whether you're using pressure and release or treats or what, it doesn't really matter if it's no big deal. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it takes a lot of energy for a horse to resist. Yeah. To not do something takes takes effort. Mm -hmm. And the horse knows there'll be consequences. So difficult to ask a horse to do something, even if he'd kind of rather not, if the thing is just no big deal. But the minute his brain starts putting up protections, right? So, which is why, you know, when I see horses refusing a jump and then being punished, especially a big jump, that's horrifying for me. Because mm. you know those horses know they are going to be punished. And, the, and they may not even be able to get out of it, right? So if they have refused to jump, it's because they actually, their brain thinks it's riskier to take the jump. That would potentially kill me, but it's worth being beat rather than taking that jump. It's worth all the pain and fear that is going to come with not taking it. So it's like, oh, when I look at that, I'm like, that's the worst thing I can even imagine. But, yeah. It says a lot about what the horse is truly feeling about jumping. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, we have to respect their nervous system and it, mm. it knows things we don't. Yeah. So, and, and I think that's really one of the biggest challenges is that you know that's happening in the physio world right the human yeah. physio world but not in the horse world this this respect for the fact that you know the brain and the nervous system play this massive role and then of course also the emotions and the social context and the immediate instant environment all of this plays a role so it doesn't make any sense to be able to say oh come on you did that yesterday i know you can do it or you just did it five minutes ago and I know you could do it, right? It's like, yeah. well, that was five minutes ago. Mm -hmm. Or the one the one that's really common, well, he did it for the trainer. Now he, So then it looks like he's just testing me to try to get out of it when, you know, there's a completely different explanation for that from a nervous system point of view that has nothing to do with... Um, Oh, he's just messing with you, right? Yeah. His brain really perceives that this is the better choice. Mm -hmm. And the trainer, right, either was so skillful in subtle ways that maybe the trainer doesn't even know he's doing, mm -hmm. and nobody's able to even figure out that he's doing something fundamentally different. But the horse figures out, I can do it with this, with this rider. First of all, I understand more clearly what they're asking, but even if it's not about clarity, 
uh, it, it can be the most subtle thing about the way that the trainer shifts his weight. And yeah. the horse is like, oh, I can do this now, right? I've got the integrity in these joints, you know, to do it. But as soon as the other person gets on, it can look from the outside, right? Biomechanically, mm-hmm. it feels like it should be the same. But to the horse, it may be very different. Or the horse, you know, doesn't want to do it because his brain says, you know, this could be a risky thing. Mm-hmm. But... It weighs the chances, knows that the trainer is going to inflict more pain mm-hmm. than, you know, than you will. So he, he makes that call. Yeah. I'll do it for the trainer because the trainer will, in fact, you know, get after me. But people's interpretation is that the horse is doing it for the trainer. Yeah, because he knows the trainer means business and you will just let him get away with it when it, it, even if that part is sort of fundamentally true i'm like but what is he getting away with he's he's quote getting away with uh doing what his brain is telling him is the safer thing to do yeah you know (laughs) because if if it wasn't he'd just do it he's not going to waste all his energy fighting or you know resisting that that tension say no yeah like people think that's fun for a horse right (laughs) i mean it's it's not fun no. for a horse they're um, trying to say but, something they're trying to tell you something <laughs> yeah so i get that that we had that narrative and it made sense before we knew the things we now know yeah about the role of the nervous system so yeah yeah and i think in a lot of those riders defense then they're, they're not even aware of this information but because that's the way they've been trained and they're kind of brainwashed oh, to think yeah. that um which brings well, me to- look at but look at this, you and I both had education that we were ignoring. Yeah. So even when you know if horse culture is so powerful mm. that, you know, like especially it was, I don't know if this was true for you, but it was, for mm-hmm. me, it was like, well, yeah, but horses, it's so different than humans, right? When fundamentally, especially once you realize the mechanics are no longer in charge, then you go, wait a minute, that, you know, am I just going to ignore all of my education? It's mm. like, of course not. You, you know, can't. <laughs> you no. can try and push no, those you can't. down, but they'll keep resurfacing. <laughs> yeah. I, I just remembered though, I didn't, I didn't finish answering this one question of if I'm yeah. not teaching people the training, how can they find out? Well, this is where I think the, the community is so powerful and helpful because Mm. the thing to do is to understand you don't have to know all the science but just understand the fundamental principles Mm -hmm. so that then you can make decisions because it's really easy to go back to the principles and go well this either fits these science principles or it doesn't Mm -hmm. but you can still be I still have to do now. The horse is doing X, and I'm. It can take a while to make that shift in your brain because it takes it takes creativity, and exploration. Which in most normal training, even with positive reinforcement, right? You have a very specific plan. You're going to do this to get this movement, and then this movement, and then this activity. And this isn't like that. So this is about you know working with the environment and the horse's nature and you know figuring out tasks that will suddenly unlock things movements for the horse but this is where there's so many people doing it now and uh there's a community project 
I post it, but I don't have anything to do with it because I don't want anyone to ever think that, well, what, let's see what Kathy says because that's going to be the answer, right? That's the right thing, right? I'm not nearly as creative as half these people are, so I don't want anyone to think that. So it's, it's all completely done by the community. I, I don't go, I, I literally just provide the site and that's called Stepping Stones. And I think it's in, a lot of it's both in English and German and they do, uh, you know, submit video. It's all free for now, right? And it's just the community and they submit videos and do voiceovers and talk about it. And, and just all of the, the people doing this stuff on Instagram, it's really, there, there's such a wealth of examples and it turns out that that's actually how, I mean, that's what learning theory supports. Um, this idea of you need to get as many different kinds of examples as possible, which mm -hmm. is so much more powerful because that's how, you know, that's how this sort of deep perceptual learning happens. Because mm -hmm. um, your brain is able to sort, you know, signal from noise. It's, and especially if they see it with different kinds of horses, um, you know, whether it's, you know, not just different breeds, but, uh, you know, a lot of people have horses that are more fire-breathing dragons by nature than mine, right? And also just huge horse, you know, yeah. so uh, people want to see that. Um, yeah. And you can see all of that, right? Some people ride, some people don't. It, it's just everything is there, different ages. So I think that it is actually pretty amazing because that's the most powerful way to learn. You still kind of have to learn the principles, but those are actually pretty easy. Because <laughs> yeah. again, you don't need to know the science. I, I offer it in my course because some people really do want to get into it, but you don't need it okay. to do this. Yeah. What specific principles are you talking about that people should know? Um, well, I, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> um, Unless, I mean, maybe these are things inside your course. I'm trying but... to figure out how to simplify that, but yeah. <laughs> I, I think, uh, so they, they need to understand self-determination theory, what that means, why positive reinforcement can, can hurt intrinsic motivation and what really is intrinsic motivation. But that, you know, I usually send people to, again, Dan Pink's TED Talk because it's a super simple explanation, but it's based on the underlying real science. Mm -hmm. um, and that gives people a taste of it. And then there are quite a few ways uh, to learn about it. And again, you know, there are huge textbooks on it. And, and I know all those textbooks, but you understand interaction between intrinsic motivation and operant conditioning, mm -hmm. how they work, how they work together, um, or how they conflict, right, then um, it's pretty easy. And the, the, like I said, the very simple ways if people are still trying to get their brain around that, I'll say, well, for now, to be on the safe side, and I mean safe in terms of not potentially hurting their intrinsic motivation, if you're doing anything that has probably no intrinsic value for the horse, so, which is basically a whole bunch of horse keeping, right? There is nothing that my horses are going to find intrinsically rewarding. Well, probably about being clipped right <laughs> about you know a, a bunch of horse keeping stuff is just not you know standing tied for this procedure uh then it's no you know 
if I need to use positive reinforcement, um, I will. I kind of try not to. Like if I can get away with just very simple pressure and release or just even just enticing them in with food, just there, there's your hay, go mm-hmm. stand over there and there's hay. Look, there's hay in the trailer, go get it. Um, I'm always going to try to do that and not, I try not to use positive reinforcement, but I absolutely without question will anytime I think it's needed because otherwise I'd have to use force because I'm I'm trying to never, ever, ever use force. Now, sometimes you have to, I won't ever use it in movement though. That's my absolute, I'll never cross that boundary Mm -hmm. unless the movement is life-threatening. Like, you know, we've, we've evacuated for fires twice. So if we need to go right now, um, yeah, I'll do whatever I have to do, but, um, but I've never had to do that in, I mean, I don't know how many years, years. I haven't had to ever use force to make a horse do a, a kind, any movement, really. Um, so, so it's fine to use any kind of reinforcement that works with things that are not ever going to be intrinsically rewarding. But for movement, I want movement to be intrinsically rewarding. I want horses calming down and relaxing to be intrinsically motivated. So Mm -hmm. I don't, those are things, I don't want to put those under external uh, reinforcement. So, uh, or what they call external regulation, right? I want this to be coming from the horse naturally because Mm -hmm. either they they like it, they want to do it, uh, they naturally want to calm themselves down and relax when it's time, right? So I try not to reinforce my way to those things. I try to find more natural, authentic reasons so that the horse can find ways to experience that themselves. I try to sort of stay out of that. But if they're not doing it and I think they need to, then again, I find try to find more authentic ways for that to emerge without me actually actively reinforcing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then when it comes to movement the kind of simple rule that, and it's really the one I mostly use is if there's effort. (laughs) So, and that's going to be individual for the horse. So if the horse is really putting some big effort into it and, but I'm just looking for, um, it, it could be, uh, high coordination. Like I think I gave the wrong impression to people for years. I would say, click for badass, right? And then I would show my horses doing these, you know, big giant, you know, strike offs and stuff. And, um, and that wasn't the best way to frame it because it was fine for my horses, right? But of course, now I have a stallion that that's all he wants to do. So I don't, we don't do that. What we do for him is uh, high coordination. So high coordination coordination challenges. So for him, he can throw his legs around all day. He's also hypermobile and, and he actually turns out is neurological, but for him collecting himself and doing like the, you know, the fancy walk on a downhill slope in kind of a leg yield or a shoulder in, right? That is so, that takes all of his focus and figuring out where he's putting his feet, right? So I have no problem rewarding that because that's high effort for him. And high effort, again, means that the sort of protective neurochemical thing is happening. Um, But for other horses, like 
jump started in the beginning. What are they doing a fancy trot? So you, what do you click for? So the tempting thing, if you're using positive reinforcement, is to try to slowly, incrementally build it. And that's the thing we absolutely don't do. So instead, you try to set up situations in their environment where you can catch them at it. Um, you know, like I said, literally the horse is running away from you. But at least he's running, right? Um, he had a purpose, right? But it could be that the moment of a transition, if you can catch a transition, because there is evidence that there's a metabolic spike at the moment, physically at the moment of a transition to a new gait. But the moment they are fall back to their lowest version of it, then it's too late. So kind of what I'll tell people is if, if you have a horse and he's walking, right, and then he's, okay, I'll trot. And then he goes up into this trot, but it's just really, you know, his lowest energy trot. I'm not going to reward for that. But if I can catch it at the moment they start to gather themselves to do it, the transition state physiologically is, is a safe moment. So, um, so we reward then not for the same reasons I think that people kind of traditionally would be reward him for the idea of doing it, mm -hmm. right? We're not rewarding him for the idea. We're literally reinforcing it at the moment when there's something physically happening that, yeah. that we think can help change their relationship with the treats. Um, and then most of it is really just looking for ways to create situations naturally and authentically mm -hmm. where they're doing the movements that they normally resist. Yeah. Like ask for anything that the horse, anything the horse is willing to do, ask for it however you ask for it, right? Whether it's pressure release or cueing or clicker training, but everything really for us comes down to the movements the horse is resisting. Yeah. And for some horses, of course, you know, that could be all the way back to they're pretty much resisting everything. But for a lot of horses, it's just certain things that they struggle with. Those are the ones we say, okay, it's fine to just keep doing what you're doing with all the other ones, but just stop asking for the things that the horse is resisting. And we're going <laughs> to, we're going to take a different approach to get there. Mm -hmm. um, so that we're going to kind of sneak those movements under the radar until the nervous system realizes that it's no problem. But right now, the nervous system doesn't think it's a good idea, and I'm just not gonna fight with their brain. If their brain is saying bad idea, I'm gonna say, okay, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna have a battle with their brain because if they're in protection mode, if their brain is sending protection signals, mm -hmm. bracing, stiffness, reluctance, weakness, whatever it might be, then I'm only going to make it worse by pushing them through that, which, of course, a lot of horses will then give, but now what we call, you know, compensation whack-a-mole, right? The horse now goes, all right, fine, I'll do that. But his brain still thought it was a bad idea. Now it's going to find a different way to get around it. Mm -hmm. um, and you might not see that compensation for another three months before it starts to be a problem. So... It's like treating symptoms. If we make them do it, um, you know, we, we can fix the symptoms, but we haven't changed the reason that their brain thought it was a bad idea. And I think that the naive view, which I had too at one time, was, yeah, but if we just 
kind of make him do it, you know, we're not going to beat him or anything, but if we just push him through the struggle thing, then he will know. And then his brain will go, oh, turns out I can do it, right? And that, I think, is very rarely the outcome. Mm -hmm. His brain will go, okay, I guess you're not going to let me have that protection compensation anymore so i'll find a different one but we haven't solved the problem of why does you know and we don't know right we don't know what part of the body the horse is even protecting right that idea that you don't you know the part that hurts by the time they come to a physiotherapist isn't necessarily the part that's the problem mm -hmm. or that was the problem long ago and now Right. But but now whatever it is, right, that injury happened, they went into protection mode. So they stopped moving large portions of their body or even just that joint. And then eventually, as that cortical map starts to deteriorate, who knows all the other parts of their body that are affected by that now missing area in the horse's motor map. Yeah. And so part of it is just if we can just get the horse naturally and authentically to rebuild that map through, usually through play or just solving movement challenges. I mean, sometimes you can just put a hill inside the horse's paddock, right? And you might, you might solve everything. It's just until this sort of rebuilds, you know, and often we don't actually have to do things that are too intense, even specific. I'll, I'll wait and see if just the environment itself will sort itself out. I might do put things in the environment. Like I, I put deliberate obstacles up that the horses have to go around um, even when it's an open space, right? Like they, it's not being closed off. They have a pasture, but now they have to go all the way around a fence line. It's open, but they can't just... Um, they can't just not go around these things. So it's sort of like a track system, even when you don't necessarily need it, just so that they will have situations where they have to make t tight turns in that direction. And then sometimes I'll call them in, you know, for dinner and they'll race each other. And I'll know that at that turn, there's a good chance they're going to take the, that lead that I want when they go around that bend. <laughs> and so I'll just play with those things and none of them have anything to do with training yeah and i'll go oh okay turns out there it is there's the lead now <laughs> you know it's yeah, that's... and then only if it's really you know a deep pattern that's just stuck then i'll have to do things that still don't have anything to do with force but mm -hmm. then i'll have to get more creative like exaggerating the problem right then getting yeah. their brain to go oh holy shit that was a bad idea um i guess i do need to put weight on that leg but mm -hmm. not because we asked them to but because we stood them sideways on a slope <laughs> and did a carrot stretch and they almost fell over and so they have to give up that crooked pattern because mm -hmm. at that point we took it to the extreme where it was just going to fail yeah um you know that kind of thing Mm -hmm. You know, I've always kept, well, I live in a hilly area, so my horses have always been on hills and touch wood. My horses have always been pretty sound. Um, even my first pony lived to the age of 39 and she was, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I've always thought, especially with my physio background, I'm like, I honestly think the hills keep them 
sound and, and healthy because they're constantly having to solve uh, movement challenges by oh, navigating yeah. hills. So, yeah, I think that's that. Whereas a lot of people are like, no, my horse must be on flat ground 24-7, perfect surfaces only, and I've always been an advocate for the opposite of that. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, not- God, yes. <laughs> I think yes. most people- I mean, You go. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I mean, that, you know, something that I've, was really inspired by with all of this, of course, was Iceland. Um, the very first time I went to Iceland, it, it was on non-horse business. And it, we're just driving from the airport, you know, to the to the event. And I would see these horses, you know, on the side of the road. And I thought, wow, you know, these must be competition horses at some fancy barn, you know. And the, the taxi driver just started laughing. He's like, no, these are just horses. I mean, they're just horses, right? There's, there's nothing special. This is what they do. And I'd never seen horses just move out like this. And, mm. and then, of course, I found out, you know, they're all doing that. I mean, and this is how they live. Their lifestyle and their training is yeah. almost all out in nature. And that nature is harsh um and diverse and so they have so much movement just from living Mm -hmm. but then then it's really easy for them to express it right huge shoulder movement right none of this sort of tight restrictions that we see Mm -hmm. even the horses that were in training i mean the horses some of the horses are in harsh training and they might react very stiffly under the saddle, right? But they still are out in nature. So, so much protection. So part of what I thought is, you know, okay, can't take the horses back to Iceland, need to bring some of that Iceland back to them. And what, what is it that I can introduce into their environment? So when I, you know, now we have our own farm and there's hills and I can put in whatever I want, right? It's, it, it's got enough diversity that I'm, it's not great, but it's got a lot of diversity and I'm pretty happy. And again, I think 90% of the benefit is just that there's some good hills. And, um, and one of the biggest hills that is the sort of training hill, I think, and I tell people this, it was an artificially made hill. So even if you're in a flat area, this is just, um, was from excavation mm-hmm. of building a barn and a house um they just you know had to dump it somewhere so they dumped it there and made a hill and now that hill is amazing grateful for it but it wasn't you know the environment is gently hilly not like this thing yeah. but even a very small like tiny hill but with like a gradual slope on one side and more of like a cliff on the other side is just perfect yeah um, i i would if i had to give up everything that's what i would do um, but I didn't have any of that really. Um, well, we had in the barn when I first started all the intrinsic stuff, we were perched way on top of a hill and the property was so steep that the horses couldn't be on that at all. So all they could be on was the little f- pretty flat area at the top that mm-hmm. had been graded for this beautiful dressage arena with perfect footing, right? That's all we really had. And I'm like, this is so not going to work, <laughs> you know? So a lot of these so exercises, and the, yeah. So these activities and exercises and the, the gym mats and the, you know, introducing all of these things was to help make up for the fact that they didn't have any diversity or 
environmental challenges. So I had to put them in artificially, um, which, which of course really, really, really helped. Um, the way I look at it now, now on this farm, is that I can just be so lazy because basically just their existence is doing most of the heavy work. There, it's you know, it's like, and I'll look outside and I'll look at them running around or playing, or and I'll go, oh okay. I just ran up and down that hill a few times. Well, they don't need any work today. Yes. <laughs> they just did it all themselves. So, yeah. So it's a lot easier when the environment is already doing all of it than, you know, than, but when it's not, right, we didn't have that situation. So I, I want people to understand that even if you have really the worst circumstances um, and all we had was this tiny space and sometimes the mud was so bad there that I would work on canter departs in a stall. Wow. I mean, just that was the benefit of teaching them the sort of, okay, shift your weight back, just one stride, right? And I'd click before they even, you know, before that leg even came down. And it's like, oh, it turns out we can't canter in here, but we can work on canter departs. And, you know, we can still do all kinds of stuff. Amazing. Um, even if we have these terrible conditions. So, yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah, and that should be empowering for people as well because, you know, if it's a rainy day or something, there's still things they can work on, which is oh, yeah. cool if you're the sort of person that loves to hang out with your horse. And I think most people really do just want a happy horse and they want their horses to move freely and healthily. What do you think makes a happy horse and what do you think healthy movement is for horses? I think, um, well, I think a happy horse is, you know, are, of course, are there basic fundamental species specific needs being met, right? They need to have, be eating a huge percentage of the day, have something to eat. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's something that's a real struggle when you have horses like mine that can look at a piece of grass and gain weight. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but, you know, like I said, now they can, uh, most of the year they can be on pasture. So that takes care of itself, the, the eating thing. But, you know, in California, they didn't have that. So <laughs> we fed them and they couldn't have 24-7 hay because there weren't, they just weren't yet at the point where they could self-regulate. Mm -hmm. So we literally fed them five hay meals a day, spaced out, including midnight. Wow. You know, and I mean, that's just, it's like, well, we can't let them go, you know, eight hours without anything and the slow feeders they still managed to eat all of the hay that we could possibly uh be able to give them at that meal right because because we were weighing all the hay so we were trying to figure out what you know what's the exact portion and we'll try to give them the biggest portion for the longest period of time but they would still eat it so kind of our our rules you know they 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 can't go more than like five hours without something and ideally um you know less than that but i wasn't willing to get up at 2 a.m to feed the slow feeders so midnight was fine um and then you know first thing in the morning um again it's really nice now that we don't really have to do that um so you know being able to eat and not having food anxiety um, being able to get good sleep. So, you know, they need to have friends. Even if it's on the other side of a fence, you know, how horses really, right? You know, sleep has become a big hot topic in the human 
you know, physio and performance and health world. So, uh, you know, does, does the horse have another horse there that can, you know, stand guard or just be there? Are they getting good sleep? Are they able to get, you know, some periods of REM sleep and all of that? Um, friends in whatever that means. Um, and sometimes that does mean they're better off if they're over a fence but can still interact. Um, but ideally, you know, friends together. I mean, obviously, we have the stallion. Of course, he's in with the three geldings, and they all have a great time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I would never, of course, keep a horse alone. But, you know, and room to move. And, you know, I think those are some basic some diversity in their life I mean I watch what the horses do how much they will choose to move to places throughout the day where they have a different view that you know even when that's not got any grass on it they'll still choose to sometimes they'll go way down there so they can look at what's out over there and then they'll come back and then they'll go down this other track to see what's over there and then they'll you know um, they'll just they'll just explore and look at their environment and, oh, look, there's cows over there. And, oh, look, the, you know, oh, look, the mares are out now. And um, so I think they have an interesting life, but I don't do a lot of the things that I think are good that people do. I think a lot of people work much harder than I do on, you know, what I'll call enrichment, you know, putting all kinds of stimulating things in their environment. Um, I, I would if the ho- if a horse was like had to be on rest or some for some reason or in a small paddock or for something, um, but normally, you know, they I mean they have some trees. You know, they have. I just if a if a tree big tree branch falls, I just usually leave it or I drag it to a place where they're probably going to have to go over it. But I don't work very hard on those things. Um, so I think it doesn't take that much for them to just be happy in their life if they're not feeling threatened. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not feeling really bored and they're not feeling stressed and they're not feeling lonely um, it's more like the absence of things yeah. uh, and then they can be and then but movement so you know that's the thing I take really 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 seriously mm-hmm. and I you know my assumption is the horse is a prey animal of course mm-hmm. uh, you know his nervous system wants to know that, that horse is a capable horse that that horse could very easily turn on whatever he needs to turn on to escape now whether that's he can instantly oh i'm eating and oh my god there's a tiger i gotta run um so we work a lot on acceleration not like how long can the horse sprint but what's his zero to 60 you know how fast can and i mean Dreamer just had no capability of doing that, right? It would, he could maybe, even for a long time, he could slowly work his way up to faster and faster and faster, right? But we needed to work on the turn it on all of a sudden, right? Mm-hmm. How fast can you do that? Yeah. So those things that are very, you know, empowering to the, to we assume, to the horse's sense of self-efficacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other one, and the reason why... Even if we were never going to ride, I'd still want to work with the horses on being able to, you know, quote unquote, collect to Mm -hmm. be able to shift their weight back to get into an agile position so that if they can easily get back into that position and then they can move in any direction very easily and quickly. Um, So, you know, that's we, we don't look at things like crookedness as 
well, that's a fundamentally biomechanically bad way to move. It's just a very restricted way because if it's perfectly fine to move that way, but what's not fine is that it probably means he's not moving in all the other possible ways. So now he's only got, he's got his movement toolkit is too small. So that's really the answer to what makes healthy movement. It's to have a big, robust, diverse movement toolkit. Yeah. So now we've got the, you know, the, the motor maps are, uh, you know, very filled out and rich and high resolution so that the brain always knows, oh yeah, oh yeah, those joints move independently. Yeah. I don't need to brace that. And I don't need to brace this thing over here because this thing up here work, seems to be working just fine. Showing me you still have access to it mm-hmm. um all of those things right so the longer the horses are restricted well you know it's just like it might as well be like they had a cast on mm-hmm. um, and we know now how fast the brain um you know the neuroplasticity happens mm-hmm. you know overnight right you yeah. put a cast on by the next day the brain has already decided that it doesn't need to allocate very much space to that joint mm-hmm. um, because it's not doing anything so keeping all the mechanoreceptors, uh, you know, moving and triggering and firing. So movement diversity, movement diversity, movement diversity. Yeah. And that's where hills so often already provide a lot of that. I mean, there's no guarantee a horse could still get really restricted and still have, you know, but you can watch, right? You can see the horse and go, oh, he's always doing this in the exact same way. Mm-hmm. So then you know that's when i might step in and say well i'll just give him some new challenges that will just where that his one go-to solution just isn't really a useful option right not because i'm making him do anything differently but i've just posed a problem where oh it turns out that doesn't really work Mm -hmm. (laughs) and but he wants to do this other thing and the only way he can do this other thing is by doing a different movement so we look at instead of well can the horse solve this, you know, the classical collection of movement problems, which is a small number, right? Instead of looking for, can they solve the small number of problems, you know, correctly or perfectly in some ideal way, we look at, we want them to be able to solve any freaking problem that might come up. And for those sort of classical, you know, key movements, we want them to have as many different ways to solve the same problem. Mm. Um, you know, how many different ways can they actually do the same thing and, um, you know, answer the same problem. So we look at everything in terms of movement problems. Like people would sometimes say, well, but you don't do, uh, or they'd see people do the crunches and go, oh, but they're just trying to get out of doing lateral work. You know? And it's like, oh, no, because lateral work is almost the easiest because if a horse wants to solve the problem, how do I move forward but still keep track of something over here? And that's why, like, I think, I don't know, if, if I could only do a couple of things, I would, of course, somehow get even a small hill into my space, even if it's really tiny. Um, I would go along a fence line holding their tub of food. And this is, you might have seen people do this, and we just call it the I changed my mind. And it's like, 
it, so, and even people who aren't using any positive reinforcement, right? You could do this with a target, but even if you're just getting ready to deliver their food and they're like keeping track of you, assuming the horse does not have food anxiety or there aren't other horses that are going to get in a fight, right? Assuming it's safe, you're on the other side of the fence and you're just carrying their food like you do, right? And you're getting ready to place it and they don't know where, but they're waiting for you to place it. And then you suddenly go, you just think to yourself, oh, you stop focusing on the horse. You're just like, oh, I changed my mind. And you just suddenly turn around and go the other direction. It's amazing how many horses who haven't done anything on their hind end in such a long time will usually pretty quickly, if not the first day, sometimes it can take a while though, will sit, spin, do a rollback, strike off into canter. Um, and they'll be doing it in both directions and taking weight on the inside hind, right? And no one's asking him to do it, but that's how they solve the problem. And then I just start playing. So that's my favorite exercise. You know, it's just, I can just do it while I'm delivering food. And then um, I can play with the speed and my position. And then I can just explore and say, oh, well, he's trying to figure out how to keep track of me but he has to stay up with me because he because he, because he wants to. I'm not asking him to, but yeah. I've got the food. Um, yeah. Or you know, if I have a target, then that's a different thing too. But but if I'm just holding the food, uh, then uh, they'll want to go forward, but they have to look at me. So even if they're crooked in a way where they don't normally want to bend this way, they don't really have a choice because they because they're motivated to look at you, um, and so suddenly they're exploring it and then again very quickly that becomes a much easier thing for them to do because now they've generated it themselves their brain has had to work out all of the body parts that it brings to bear to answer that problem right instead of me trying to figure out i think you know another few degrees this way and then oh but no now i need to get that shoulder right all of that puppeteering and micro shaping right? Doesn't, then it's a mechanical movement. It's not generated by his movement system. So I want his movement system to go, oh, it turns out (laughs) that I'm going to have to use that, you know, that hind that wasn't stepping under this. And a lot of times the horse just doesn't, doesn't even think about it. Right. It's just like, that, that's just how you do it. And then suddenly, and now I go, oh, I'm going to do, I'm going to do a few weeks of that, you know, and suddenly they have that strength back. They're, capable of doing it now you ask the horse to bend you know with your reins or whatever and he's like sure no problem i mean why was that a problem <laughs> you know yeah. and people will go oh my god he hasn't bent like this in you know 10 years and the horse is like what because <laughs> he his his nervous system figured out and we didn't tell him how to do it we just said mm-hmm. keep track of this thing and then you get leg yield you get shoulder in three track, shoulder in four track. And I want all of it all the time. I want them to be able to do every possible angle, every possible configuration, Hmm. because, uh, you know, what's that quote? Uh, One of the physios said, sooner or later, gravity is going to take you there. Yeah, yeah. I also like the one, your next posture is your best posture. Yes, I love that one. <laughs> yeah, you know, I love that one. <laughs> or, um, uh, Dr. Andrea Spino said, yeah, you always regret not training the position in which you got injured. Yes, yes, that is true. And then that's a lot of where the rehab is directed, yeah? so Right. Mm. So that's why it's like, 
uh, and, and I know it's, you know, this took me a very long time in the human world because, you know, I had five years of university with correct biomechanics drilled into me. My senior thesis was on knee biomechanics, you know, and I'd had knee surgery. So it was, yeah, it was really, and, and then the, the next 10 years, right, working in that environment where, I mean, you know, we had the equipment, right, that you strapped people down so, so that yeah. there was no option. They had to only move in that way. So no, now it's like, God, of course they were fragile, right? That's all they could do. I mean, we, that's the weird thing, right? I also had, you know, I had exercise physiology. We understood the said principle, right? We, we knew that adaptation is specific, and yet we somehow believed that, I don't know, like we thought it would transfer, even though we also knew it didn't. Yeah. But, or we were just too afraid that you didn't want to hurt anyone, and we knew you know, from cadaver studies, which of course was really useful, um, that, you know, there was more load here. And so, oh God, we don't want to move the joint that way. And that's why when I went back, you know, to get those, those new certifications, you know, 30 years later, I find out that they're going, oh yeah, you know, those things that actually put more load on. And so that's why we used to avoid them. That's exactly why we want to do them. Yeah. <laughs> those it's are the ones we want now. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, Oh yeah. It, yeah, it was such a <laughs> such a mind blower, and you know, I mean, now it's been many years, but it took me a while, right? I would still cringe mm. when I would see someone, you know, move in a certain way with their knee, and I'd be like, "Oh God," you know. And, mm. and now I don't think that at all. Um, of course, now I see it completely differently. But it it took a while, and I know that that's hard for a lot of people with a classical biomechanics background mm. for, for horses. Mm -hmm. um, and we've had people who started to dabble a little bit with this kind of movement thing that we do. And then they'll go, no, I just can't do that anymore because I just don't feel good reinforcing the horse for moving in any way that's not the correct way. And we're like, well, there, there's technically no such thing as correct. I'm about to say, I mean, who decided what was correct? Honestly, who decided yeah. that? <laughs> Yeah. And, and you know, some of it, I mean, and then people will go, well, because it's the most biomechanically efficient. Well, first of all, you, it would be very specific to that individual. So it was wrong to generalize and use averages anyway. But OK, let's say hmm. that, that even for this animal, this or human, whatever it is, this is the most biomechanically efficient. Right. So the highest force production with the lowest, you know, stress on the joints or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, the idea was that the, that was then therefore healthier and more correct. When again, in reality, it may be that that, that was the one. That was the so, I so yeah, you might try to start cut. that way, right? You're not going to put, you know, it just cut out a little bit. Could you repeat that please? Oh, oh yeah. Um, now let's see where it was just the last <laughs> <laughs> um, oh yeah it was so, your punchline as well which you cut out on <laughs> I know. Damn. um uh, imagine i said something really amazing now um <laughs> this this idea that we thought that the most efficient movement was then therefore the most correct so even even if we can determine that which we can't, but let's just say that we could determine this is the most efficient movement. 
or most efficient way to execute this particular movement, the idea that somehow that then meant that was the healthiest, that was also, of course, a flaw um, that we didn't understand that the most efficient was maybe the one that would do the least amount of good, right? Because that's going to put the least amount of stress, the lowest adaptation. Yeah. Now, obviously, you know, mechanics matters under yeah. a really heavy load mm -hmm. or something that you're going to repeat over and over. But that's the other thing, too. Um, I don't know the statistics in the human world anymore, but in the horse world, we know the statistics that are... Um, that the majority of sport horse injuries are caused by repetitive stress. So, you know, the, 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 the research, the veterinarians will say, we think that this so-called catastrophic, you know, ligament or tendon that just blew was simply the last straw, right? It, it was going for a long time. It didn't just out of nowhere explode, right? Unless it was, you know, like a, a crush injury or, you know, yeah. something, you know, another horse, you know, runs into it. Yeah. yeah. But just an injury and in movement that, um, and so to me, when I started looking at that research a few years ago, it sort of became really clear that the biomechanics correctness approach was contributing to that problem mm -hmm. because there was no evidence that repetitive stress was uh, less of an injury risk by doing movement correctly. I think people think that research exists and it doesn't. There's no, there's no evidence that actually says um, if the horse moves only correctly, then they will not get repetitive stress. And in fact, dressage horses have a very high incidence um, of hind leg injuries. And of course the ideal is always, well, we're doing this dressage because it will help the horse, you know, not be injured on his front, his fragile front legs, which of course they're not fragile. Um, so then we just put more stress on the hind legs in a very particular way over and over and over and over. Mm -hmm. Um, and now there is research in the human world that's, uh, that's starting to suggest that, um, th this relationship between variability versus repetitive stress injury. Mm -hmm. So if, um, if the movement is done with lots of different possibilities, which it seems that bodies evolved to do, um, then that, that is a, a sort of natural protection mechanism. So I don't know if, if you ever saw the old, um, the blacksmith studies by Nikolai Bernstein. No. So he kind of coined the term, or they think anyway, that he is the one who came up with the term biomechanics. So he was um, this amazing Russian, well, biomechanist, exercise physiologist, and he was kind of obsessed with like dexterity and coordination and skill acquisition and all of that. And so he developed what was kind of the first motion technology, which is just a series of photographs of someone moving, right? And then he would draw lines and little dots to trace the path of the movement. Mm -hmm. And so they took expert, expert blacksmiths who were incredibly consistent. 
They could hit the hammer in the exact spot on the anvil every single time. Mm -hmm. But what they found out is that the path they took with each swing was really different. Wow. Single time. And then eventually they started finding out that this variability, but it was always functional, right? There weren't some really weird ones that were that would compromise and where they wouldn't even be able to hit it, right? But the the relationship, right, the ratios between how the joints were moving uh, would would vary, but still allow the thing to happen. Mm-hmm. So they thought, well, that seems very protective because there is a, you know, they're slamming that thing down, mm-hmm. but they're doing it different every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they started finding that in almost all expert performers of any kind of movement, they have higher variability, but it's within a very specific functional range, right? A beginner might be kind of all over the place. Yeah. But once they start trying to move, then they call it the freezing degrees of freedom problem, that they start locking down their movements. Basically, they're trying to do the movements only one way. And you see most beginners on any activity, right? You're trying to freeze yourself to control the movements, um, you know, that you're doing. But... uh, as real expertise is developed, which of course some people never get to, then uh, there's a period where now they're exploring how to exploit the degrees of freedom and use it. And a lot of times it's unconscious in some of the most skillful movers, but they're moving different every single time. Um, and so now like some of the biomechanic, human biomechanics labs, um, like the one by, um, I think it's Nicholas Stergio, and he has a great TED talk on movement variability and now they have, I think it's the University of Omaha, their biomechanics lab is a, and it's, it's, it's the biomechanics people driving this. Mm-hmm. Their biomechanics lab has a center for movement variability. And it's all based on studies of what is healthy movement. And so now, and this kind of sums up, you know, the whole, what is it that it takes for healthy movement? I mean, they're redefining healthy movement as it's movement that has a variable pattern. And it turns out that that variable pattern actually maps to a fractal pattern. So, um, and they f- are finding that they can actually help people regain healthier movement after, for example, a stroke or someone who's been moving very rigidly or an elderly person who is at risk of falling simply by giving them mechanoreceptor stimulation in a sort of, uh, well, a stochastic pattern, right? A random pattern, but that follows a uh, statistically a fractal pattern, right? So there's some, you know, a small percentage of like, you know, bigger outliers. And then, you know, as you get to the smaller perturbations, then there's much more of them, right? So there's a lot of variability in a very small area. And then there's some in this sort of medium and then a little bit in this other range. And now they're finding this is what defines healthy movement, both health as in this, um, as in when you lose that, that's an indication of uh, either potentially a neurological problem, but also just when someone's been injured, right? That's the first thing you see is they lock down. Mm-hmm. So that ability to still maintain that healthy movement variability. Um, And so we actively try very hard to 
create situations where that happens. And, and to me, that's the biggest difference in movement between the sort of older classical model and where movement is today. Is, and this is the part that I wish that more classical trainers would understand that the whole movement science view of what is healthy movement has changed. Um, and it's, it's changed in a way that makes the focus on correct only mechanics actually less healthy than if we just kind of left them alone because now we're actually deliberately pruning movements from their toolkit Mm -hmm. and some classical training is really extreme right there's some classical training that won't even do leg yield that even leg yield they think is bad it's like so i mean to take out all these movements i mean the horse you know they evolved to do it all yeah so we're we're not going to take that away Mm -hmm. And if we want to ride them, like there's a lot of theories, uh, I don't know where they come from though, that somehow all of this stuff has to be done so the horse will be healthy to ride. And I think, I think you probably already have seen, you know, my, you need to be able to back from the weight of the rider pushing it into extension. Mm -hmm. So we'll just teach them to do that. (laughs) It's like, it's not that complicated. If they can do that, if they learn to do that, and they have good movement variability. They have a big toolkit. Mm. They're good. It's, yeah. it's, and then if we happen to want to do some specific movements, you know, because maybe we are doing dressage, then we just say, hey, horse, you have all these tools in your toolkit, but this one particular tool, I'm going to put that one on a cue. So I'm not going to take any of those other ones away. But hey, remember that one that was a perfect three-track shoulder in, you know, even though the horse could not care less? But we'll say, but you know that one? That one I want on a cue. Yeah. And then you can still express those and train those and get, you know, good adaptation for those, but not lose all the others, not cut the others out. They're all there. Mm. And then people are, you know, of course, starting to find that the more they have all of the movements, the better they get at the exact movements they might want to show for some particular reason. Yeah, which makes so much sense. Everything you're saying, Kathy, is so inspiring. And I know so many people look up to you and really just admire everything that you're doing. But I would love to know from you, who inspires you? And specifically, if you could have dinner with any three horse people, dead or alive, who would it be and why? And what would you ask them? Yeah, I, I'm still struggling with that one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, well, okay, dead or alive, I, I would love to talk to to Xenophon, but the way Xenophon, but the yeah. way my brain works, <laughs> the way my brain works is that I, I'm always wondering, what is it that's stopping people? from doing these kinds of things. Like I I would like to ask him, you know, he was so passionate about, you know, you're not gonna get beautiful movement with whips and chains and all that, right? Why would you do that? Mm -hmm. And I wanna ask him like, why, why didn't that catch on? I mean, like, like he he intuitively understood intrinsic motivation, you know, Mm -hmm. thousands of years before we're still, people are still like, what? That's crazy, I'm not gonna do that. so, you know, and, and I mean, I, I get criticism from both sides, right? Yeah. The people that do traditional training and the people that are very sort of strongly, purely positive reinforcement. Yeah. Because, you know, we, 
well, as a physio, you'll understand this. You know, we want the horses to have challenge, physical challenges and physical stress for adaptation. Yeah. Um, we just don't want it to be a threat. So it's like challenge without threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why right of consent is so important to me because I really do want to challenge them. And I don't ever want my horse to do something intense and hard because he thinks he doesn't have a choice. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I don't want him to take the risk. I want him to feel like he's going to listen to his brain. And if his brain says bad idea, he'll tell me that. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we'll work on it. We'll do, you know, we'll figure that out. We'll use variability on other versions of it until one day it's just there. Um, like it's pretty easy to solve those problems. Um, just not by going at it directly. Right. Not by treating the symptom. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I would want to ask him, you know, why, why hasn't, why didn't this catch on or how did other people feel about that when you would say these things? Um, (laughs) Well, uh, I guess a negative one is, so this is, I know this is probably not what you meant. It doesn't inspire me, but (laughs) I would like to ask, I would like to ask Clinton Anderson why he feels the way he feels about like women and stallions and showing them who's boss and all that, you know, I'd like to invite him over to look at how we train our stallion with treats and, you know, I feel like you guys have a very hated discussion. (laughs) But, um, yeah. Um, so, you know, I think about things like that. Like I, I'm more sort of, you know, curious about a lot of things like why, like when I learned all these things about what had changed in the movement science world, you know, it, it went against everything I'd spent all those years learning. I mean, you know, separate from the motivation stuff and, but yet, and I, and I went, Oh God, you know, I'm going to have to really turn now that's all you know that's almost all useless I have to learn a whole new set of things and think differently and everything but I still went but wow the possibilities like this opens up an incredible world of hope Mm -hmm. like I think that the old models you know don't they don't have a lot of hope like if you don't succeed or if you don't feel like it's going well you just feel bad Mm -hmm. um and this is like there's just endless hope And, and when you've tried a bunch of things and nothing's worked it's so great to find out, oh, you haven't even begun to try all this stuff. There's so much more that you can do. Um, but so I want to ask, you know, people why they still feel the way they feel or what they're afraid of. Um, the people who inspire me, you know, I think we're lucky because we're living in a social media world. So I, I can watch them and interact with them. Um, person who really inspired me early on was, um, you know, Eva, I can't pronounce her, Romat. I think I know who you're talking about on Instagram. And Flip. Um, She was the first person I'd ever seen, you know, riding with like a neck rope and using positive reinforcement, but her horse was, you know, doing passage. Mm. And I'd never seen anyone actually be able to do that. Like he was trained that way. It wasn't like, you know, I know there are people who will, you know, train very traditionally and then they can take all the gear off, you Mm -hmm. know, that sort of liberty, but it's really not. And the horse will still be able to perform it. 
But she would actually train that way. And she uses both negative and positive reinforcement. But it was really clear that her horses, like, were into it. Yeah. And it was like, oh, oh, I know the other one. Um, this is a person I would love to talk to. Is, uh, I don't know if I can pronounce her name right either. Um, Imke Spilker. And oh. she wrote Empowered Horses. And she was writing about this stuff you know, like 25 years ago. And this book is still my favorite book of all time, Empowered Horses. And the first time I bought that book, I basically just, you know, read the first couple pages and threw it across the room because I thought, it's just the way it was translated or the way it was written. I think it was originally in German, but there's an English version. It sounded like it was just going to be woo. It's, it's not at all. But that's just how the first few pages read. So, um, the the book is just fantastic and it really it's the closest thing i've ever seen to what i was feeling but of course a whole bunch of people read it and then said well now what right and and wanted to like go to her for you know training and stuff and there is a website and I, I did write to her once long, long, long time ago, many years ago, and she actually wrote back and it was like, but how can I, how can I learn more, you know, and her response was, why don't you go ask your horses? <laughs> that was her response. And I was like, so frustrated with that response. But of course, then I realized, well, she's absolutely right. But when you're in that traditional, all those traditional modes, you don't know how to ask them. I mean, how? you know and it was that you had to explore that you yeah. know that's that's your journey you got to figure that out right so i think those are the kinds of things people who actually do have that feeling or do or are at that point those are the people i want to help make that transition a little easier and faster mm -hmm. <laughs> because because there's so many people that have done all these different things and um and that's why i love the community like one person in the community said she tried bubble wrap instead of a plastic bag for the chase the bag exercise and that her horse absolutely loved it and i thought that doesn't necessarily sound like a good idea <laughs> but bobby's not afraid of anything so i'll try it and oh my god he loves it really? like the big bubble wrap oh he loves it. And like then, a popping noise? Or? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. He, it, it like made the whole chase the bag thing like 10 times more fun for him. Wow. And then Dreamer would walk over and like he just like would stomp it or something, you know. And then he realized that it popped and then he starts pounding on it, you know. And it, <laughs> I never have thought of that. But somewhere you know, someone has tried some crazy thing that you can look at and go, oh, so there's a whole bunch of stuff. That Think I've about tried how much just we love someone else tried it. <laughs> so addictive. I know, I know. <laughs> Nowhere would I have thought that was a good idea. Um, and, and it's, or, or at, that, I, that they would actually love it, right? I mean, yeah. obviously it'd be a bad idea for a horse that would be afraid of the sound. I, I would just, um, and then other, just all kinds of other weird stuff that people would try, you know, with like, 
inexpensive like that's the thing this doesn't take money no um because almost all these tools you can just make yourself uh, pool noodles are pretty cheap right and you can just yeah. chop those off and put them on the end of a dressage whip and you you have a target for teaching them like spanish walk you know uh, there's just so many things um that don't really require a lot of money but they require a lot of creativity and yeah. i i don't have that by nature so that's why my horses have benefited from the fact that a lot more people are doing crazy stuff um because when the horse has autonomy and you're trying to get movement expression authentically you need to be experimenting and exploring with stuff with ideas right how, how can i use this slope right how can i use this fence line um, you know, how can I use, really the gymnastics mat is probably the only thing that to me, I really would buy. That's, yeah. Like that's just and, about the only thing I've bought in years, you know, bubble yeah. wrap. I just get that from Amazon you know, when it comes in the box of something. Yeah. Even with the foam mat, I think you saw, I just had some old couch cushions lying around and I was like, hang on a second. <laughs> that's basically a foam mat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. We could talk for, for hours about all of these things, but before we wrap up, I would love to know what is the one message you would like our listeners to know or hear from you from today's interview? Um, I, say one. <laughs> I, I can't do one, but I could do two. <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll let you have two. <laughs> okay, okay, thank you. Because the, the, the first one is... Um, which I, I mean, I mentioned that, you know, I'm not a professional trainer, but mm -hmm. the one thing I, that I do like to emphasize, I mean, I've always called this, this is for muggles because if someone is already an expert and has no, right. I mean, they could look at a few things, you know, but they're probably already doing a lot of things to help the horse. They just don't know they're doing them. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, so many experts, which is why they have so much trouble communicating it to other students who are not professionals because, and I know the science of expertise, they don't really know what they're actually doing. They can think their way through and say, well, it's because I'm doing this and I'm doing this, but really they're doing something in their body and seeing something in the horse that they're not even aware they're seeing, but they're acting on it. And so they're able to make, you know, real changes in the horse and do things for the horse in ways that they can't teach. But the rest of us who didn't grow up you know, or weren't professionals where we're working day in, day out with tons and tons of horses. We may, we may never have that. So trying to do that, and I think most professionals are trying to train you to be a kind of version of them, maybe a crappy version of them, right? But the best you can do version of them. And if that isn't working, and there's a lot of reasons why it might not, then there's a whole other way to do it without focusing on you needing to be perfect, right? There was so much stress and pressure on me for so many years to be better and be more skillful. And especially like with riding, right? Like there's this idea that, oh, if you don't get your riding perfect, you know, my God, you're going to disrupt the horse and you're going to lose, right? So you can imagine that now, you know, I deliberately put unbalanced things on my horse and, you know, there's nothing that's going to knock my horse over because he's, you know, I'm like telling people, you maybe should try to act like a bad rider sometimes so that he develops these reflexes for riding himself because sooner or later something's going to happen, right? Mm. And then they're going to just be so strong. Um, so it's like, 
there's a way to help the horse move so that you don't have to be come an expert. You don't have to be, you know, you, you just, you don't have to. It, mm-hmm. It's in fact, in some ways, sometimes it's a disadvantage, right? Um, by helping the horse and it's not that difficult. Anyone can actually do it. It, it is a sort of a difficult transition to start if you come from a traditional background. I mean, a lot of people who are really successful with this, they've just never really had horses until now. Like they just, they got a horse, their first horse and they're doing it like this. It's really easy for them. It's the hardest for people who have this long background like I did of traditional stuff, but even in whatever way, right? And you don't have to give up everything that you're doing, right? There, there's, there's ways that you can do just some pieces of it mm-hmm. um, that can make a huge difference for the horse. And the main one is just try not to fight with nature. Like try not to get into an argument with the horse because it really means that he's in a fight with his own brain and that's a bad position for him to be in. So we can always find a way around that by just saying, oh, the moment the horse is struggling, right, we're not going to push that, but we're still going to do other stuff, right? We're not just going to back off of everything, but we're going to totally back off of that and go, oh, that's cool, brain. Yeah, thanks for letting me know that that was a scary thing, you know? And it may be that, you know, 15 minutes a day of just simple proprioception and touch in the mat and that problem just goes away. So obviously, it might take more other creative things like chase the bag or or what or hills, but the the point is we don't have to struggle so much thinking that we have to find a way to get better at getting the horse to do the thing his brain is resisting. So I just try to get nature as an ally, and I think that's that's the biggest one to me. Is we've been taught to have nature as an adversary right? It's us against the grass, the horse's desire to get grass. And it's us against the horse's perceived desire to be lazy or to test us, all those things. Hmm. Instead, if we think, well, actually, let's just use nature and, and not just not fight it, but I mean, let's use it. Let's get nature to do a lot of the, you know, hard training work for us. And that could be motivational. Like if the horse would wants to go to those other horses and I'm having trouble getting the horse to move faster and it's safe to do so, I might take those other horses to the farthest end of the pasture and then turn my horse loose. And if he's determined to run to them, well, then he got a, he ran. And if we do that for, you know, 10 days, suddenly now when I want to ask the horse to move faster, right, he's already got some adaptation. It's just easier. So we didn't have to do anything um, to try to get him to do it. We used nature so that it now became easier for him. And now it's not a big deal. So I think nature, nature as an ally instead of adversary, that, that's my goal. Love that. Amazing. And if people are listening and they're going, oh, my gosh, I just want to know more, learn more from Kathy. Can you tell us how people can go about doing that? Tell us about your courses, where people can find you, et cetera. Um, yeah. So Instagram is probably the best place. Um, and my account is Panther flows with an S uh, th- my, 
my thing is really called Panther Flow, but that wasn't available on Instagram. So it has an S at the end. But so Panther Flows. But my website is pantherflow.com. And that, I have just one course right now, and it's the um, Pain Science and Performance for Horse Owners. But it's got three free videos on it that's an intro to pain science. And, you know, well, you already know pain science. You know, it sounds like a – it's got pain right in the freaking name, right? It doesn't <laughs> sound very very festive, but it, it is. It's so much fun. Yeah. Um, and so I think if people just saw the three free videos, they would really have a very good idea about the perspective, um, you know, why we're doing it this way. And those alone, I think, can help a lot of people make changes. Um, I'm just starting to put stuff on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's also Panther Flow is my account. Um, but I have I have a few lives on there on some of the key things. So there's mm-hmm. definitely content there. Um, like I said, I do have the one course. Um, but I think the community, like if people search hashtag intrinsic inspired, they'll find so many examples. So I, I would encourage people rather than trying to, you know, I'm not the guru. So rather than trying, I, I mean, I'm a pretty good teacher of the stuff, right? I know the stuff. Um, but the best thing to do is just, you know, people need to just be empowered and not be dependent on the guru or the trainer or the person, right? And realize they can do this themselves. I mean, they can certainly get help from other people, but they can do this. And so getting in touch with the community, um, you know, starting to interact more with some of those accounts. There's a lot of people who are just freely willing to help. And like I said, this isn't a program where I'm going to evaluate people and say, oh, no, I don't think he's doing it right. You know, I'm just stunned that there are hundreds and hundreds, actually thousands of people. And yeah, some of them I might go, I would definitely not do it like (laughs) But but so what? Right. I mean, they're doing it. We're all on our journey. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And to me, that's really what meant, you know, get professional help when you need it for, you know, there may be people who have traumatized horses or they, the horse has real behavior issues Mm -hmm. or they are trying to do a specific sport and they want to go more, um, you know, they want to do more sport specific stuff. Right. So there's a huge role for professionals because professionals can often help them see how to use this. Because mm-hmm. you might say, I I need to come up with an exercise that will somehow c- cause the horse to maybe, you know, do this abduction or whatever, right? And a professional yeah. might say, oh, just have him turn this way to do this thing, you know, ask him to move over here and it'll just happen, right? Mm-hmm. So they may know so much more about how the horse just moves in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's lots of ways to still use professionals, but whilst not being dependent on them. Yeah, that makes absolutely. sense. Yeah, it does. Love it. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I know our listeners are going to love this episode. We've spoken for two hours. I think we're going to have to do it in two parts (laughs) so people can look forward to that. Thank you again for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. 
Make sure you hit subscribe so you get notified every time a new episode is released. And if you've learned even just one small thing from today's show, I would really appreciate if you could leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions from today's show, suggestions for future episodes, or just want to reach out and say hi, I would love to connect with you on Instagram at Amalia underscore horses. Remember to also register for my free connection and communication mini course at AmaliaDempsey.com.